We'll be looking at verses 3 to or 4 to 13 this morning. John, the apostle, writes, In him was life. Last week we saw he is the Word of God, Jesus Christ. In verse 4, in him was life. And the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Let's pray. Father, we come as a company of people who have been born by the will of the sovereign God, the gracious and merciful God. Father, we come to you today as our God, as our Father, as our Savior, through your Son, our Mediator, Christ Jesus, our Lord, our Prophet, our Priest, and our King. Our prophet because we are ignorant. Our priest because we are guilty. Our king because we are weak and helpless. We thank you that the Spirit has come to glorify the Son by convicting us of sin and righteousness and judgment. And of glorifying the Son by enlightening our minds in the knowledge of the Christ. Father, we pray today as we look at this passage that we could behold the glory of the living God in the face of Christ. Raise our affections. Enlarge our hearts to love you, to find our hope, our identity, our satisfaction, our pleasure in you. We ask this for your son's sake. Amen. I still remember where Heather and I were today in 2003, December the 13th. We were in a hotel room in Nashville Uh, She was on tour, a Christmas tour. We just happened to be on the Nashville stop that day. It was actually a Saturday, December the 13th, 2003. The reason I remember it, though, is because that was the day the news broke that the Iraqi dictator, Saddam Hussein, had been captured. It's hard to believe it's been 12 years. It seems like just yesterday that it occurred. It was called Operation Red Dawn. The 4th Infantry Division, uh, with about 600 men, captured him in what they called a spider hole. They said he was hiding like a rat. The day after he was captured, George W. Bush, our president, told the world these words. A dark and painful era is over. A hopeful day has arrived. And everyone shared his sentiments because the world believed that behind all of the terrorism, at least most of the terrorism, was this man, Saddam Hussein. We thought our dark time was over. Well, as grateful as we are for the success of Operation Red Dawn, as grateful as we are for the military 
we recognize that the military cannot ultimately overcome darkness. Because behind the darkness uh, is something much more sinister than a political regime. In fact, in Ephesians chapter 4, Paul is describing what's behind the darkness. And he's describing not some special class of, of sinner here. He's describing you and me apart from the life-giving grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. And here's what he says in Ephesians chapter 4. He says, we were, we were darkened in our understanding. We were alienated from the life of God. And we were ignorant due to the ignorance because of the hardening of our hearts. That is behind all darkness in the world. It's depravity. It's, the, it's pollution. It's the corruption of sinners. That's behind the darkness. And no military force can do anything about that. All a military can do is restrain evil. Okay? It cannot reverse it. We need an operation that can do more than just restrain the evil. We need an operation that can bring light to our darkness, can bring a word, can bring truth to our ignorance, can bring life to our alienation from the life of God. That's what we need to overcome the darkness, to overcome the ignorance. And that's what John chapter 1 is all about. We saw last week that Jesus Christ is the Word of God. He is the supreme revelation of God. Why do we need this Word from God? Because we are ignorant. And we are ignorant not because of our low IQs. In fact, there are people with low IQs who aren't ignorant in this sense. There are people with PhDs who are ignorant in this sense. We are ignorant because of the hardening of our hearts. So we need the Word of God to come to bear on our ignorance. We saw that last week. But we also see from Ephesians chapter 4, ignorance is not the only issue. He says we are darkened in our understanding. There is darkness that prevails in the human heart. And we are actually alienated from the life of God. We are dead in our trespasses and sins. And so we need more than a word from God. We need the light of God. We need the very life of God. That's what we see today in our passage. Last week we saw he's the word from God addressing our ignorance. Today we see he is the very light of God addressing our darkness. And he's the life of God addressing our spiritual deadness. If you would look with me in John chapter 1, this is what Advent is all about. This is what John chapter 1 is about. John is writing this to us so that we would believe this. And by believing that, we would have life in his name. He's writing this to Christians. He's writing this to you so that you would believe it more. Faith is like a muscle. The more you believe, the more you worship, the more you have hope. And he's also writing to you today who do not yet believe. There's some of you here today that have never repented of your sins. You never humbled yourself before the mighty hand of God. You have not yet believed. He is writing this to you today 
so that you would believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing in Him, you would have eternal life in His name. Well, the first thing we see in this passage, adding to what we saw last week, He is the Word of God. He is the Word, the life, and the light for us. As the Nicene Creed would would spell it out, for us and our salvation. Beautiful language. Look with me in verse 4. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. Now that word life is very important to the Apostle John. It's used 36 times in his 21 chapter book. You think it's an important word? I think so. It's used in John chapter 11, for instance, in that beautiful, beautiful uh, account where Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. And he tells Mary and Martha, he says, I am the resurrection and the life. And he who believes in me, though he dies, yet he shall also live. In John chapter 14, in verse 6, he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Now, we don't need to lose sight of those I am statements as well. Uh, Those I am statements take us all the way back to Exodus chapter 3 when Moses asked God his name. And he says, I am that I am. This is the name I want to be known throughout all generations. So when Jesus is declaring, I am the resurrection, I am the way, the truth, and the life, he is saying, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. We saw this last week. He, the Word, was with God. He is distinct from the Father, but the Word was God. He is equal in essence and power and glory with the Father. Jesus Christ is Life in itself. In fact, he says that in John chapter 5, verse 26, the Father has life in himself, and he has granted the Son that he would have life in himself. You know, the creation account, which John is basically building on here, it teaches us that all life is in the Word. God created the heavens and the earth in Genesis 1 by His Word. And God said, and it was so. We saw last week that that Word is a very person. But here John is referring primarily not to the physical realm. He's referring to spiritual life. After all, he's writing in a post-fall context, isn't he? Everything that God created in Genesis 1 was good. But then Adam, our representative, our federal head, sinned against God and sin and death entered the world. So what John is referring to here, he's referring to life after death. He's referring to eternal life. That's one of his favorite phrases. You know John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believes in him would not perish but have eternal life. That's what he's referring to. And according to John, the opposite of eternal life is not mere death. It's eternal condemnation. It's the wrath of God, John 3, verse 36. And so the living word, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, comes to us through the written word. And just as God created the heavens and the earth with this word, 
he remakes, he recreates a new heaven and new earth with this word. And that's why you sit here today as a believer. It's because that word, the power of that word came to bear on your life. James chapter 1, he says, Of his own will, he has brought us forth by the word of truth. In 1 Peter 1, he says, We were born again, not by the perishable seed, but by the imperishable seed through the living and enduring word of God. In Ephesians chapter 1, Paul says, We were included in Christ when we heard the word of truth. Romans 10, faith comes by hearing and hearing the word of Christ. That word has come to bear on your heart and that's why you are here today. And what that word does is it makes all things new. He makes all things new. In other words, Genesis 1 is about the original creation. Now this word is coming in a post-fall context to recreate what has been broken by sin and death. And now you, as a born-again believer, has new life. You have new capacities. You have a new love for righteousness. You have new hatred towards sin. You have new love towards people. You have new love for the Word of God, new love for the church. Indeed, this life, notice this life was the light of men. Again, John is hearkening back all the way um, to those first recorded words. And God said, let there be light. Genesis 1, chapter 3. This very light is a person. The God-man, Jesus Christ. Because when sin entered the world, darkness pervaded all that God created. All that He created is good. Darkness came. And now the light has come. That's what we celebrate. John is making it clear here that this word, this life, this light is the agent who will bring, to use a Christmas hymn, creation's second birth. This is our hope. This is the good news. Now note verse 5. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Again, this is language that echoes chapter 1 of Genesis. But the stress here is spiritual darkness brought on by sin. Listen to John chapter 3, verse 19. Jesus says, and this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people loved the darkness rather than the light, because their works were evil. He's referring to you and me. We loved the darkness rather than the light. That's why it's harder to teach your children to walk in a way that honors their parents than it is for them to sin. And then in John chapter 12, in a, another verse along these lines, Jesus said, I have come into the world as light so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. In other words, Jesus is the hope of the prophets. He is the hope of redemptive history. For instance, in Isaiah chapter 9, Isaiah is speaking in a time when Judah is about to go in exile because of their idolatry. 
They have bowed the knee to the idols rather than to the living God. And so Isaiah speaks to the judgment, okay, that will come on Israel, on Judah, because of their idolatry. And yet pervading throughout the book of Isaiah is a hope that is bound up in a person. And in Isaiah chapter 9, it says in verse 2, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. He's speaking prophetically there. He's pointing to a day called the day of the Lord. It's a day when God will vindicate his name by saving his people and judging his enemies. It will come through one who will come from the stem of the stump of Jesse. And he says, those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. And then in Isaiah chapter 60, Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth, and thick darkness the peoples. But the Lord will arise upon you, and his glory will be seen upon you. Now what's interesting about Isaiah 60 is that that's at the end of four servant songs. Isaiah 42, 1 to 4, Isaiah 49, 1 to 6, Isaiah 50, verses 4 to 9, and Isaiah 52, verse 13, all the way through chapter 53. In fact, in chapter 61 of Isaiah, he speaks of one who is anointed by the Lord, who will bring in this good news. Isaiah, I'm not sure he understands at that point that the very light that he's prophesying here is bound up in that very person, the suffering servant. But that's what John is hearkening to us. He is communicating to us this light that Israel hoped for, that would pervade their darkness, is a person. The God-man, Jesus Christ. He says, the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. I love that. His light is effectual. Imagine being in this gym, and it's dark. It's pitch dark. There's no windows in this gym. But when those lights come on, it pervades the darkness. It overcomes the darkness. And that is our hope. That is your hope today. You think you're in a situation right now, perhaps, in a particular area of your life that just seems hopeless. It might be a relationship, it may be wayward children, it may be a marriage. But this light is effectual. When this light comes to bear, it overcomes, it pervades the darkness. Jesus is the light of the world. That's why Paul would even say in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, But God who said, light shall shine out of darkness, is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. Jesus Christ is the light of the world. He is the hope of the world. That's what John is communicating to us. He is sovereign in his grace. He is sovereign in this light. That's what he's communicating. And yet, we see as well in this passage, and we see it a couple of times, that divine sovereignty never undermines human responsibility. We see this clearly in, in verse 6. And one of our key responsibilities is to witness to this light. John the Baptist being the supreme model of this witness. 
So we've seen the word, the life and light for us. In verses 6 to 9, we see the word, life and light witnessed. Look with me in verse 6. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. Now, all four Gospels begin at the front of their Gospels with his pronouncement of John the Baptist. You think he's important in redemptive history? Isaiah 40 tells us he is. In fact, in Isaiah 40, which comes off the heels of this prophecy that Israel would be in exile, he speaks of one who would come as the forerunner of Yahweh. John the Baptist is that forerunner. John is signaling, and all the four Gospels are signaling, that the day of exile is about to end in the person of Jesus Christ. Now, Mark even begins his gospel with John the Baptist. Luke speaks a great deal about he even his origins with his mother Elizabeth. Here, John just gets to the point. Uh, he was sent by God for a mission. And this purpose of this mission is seen in verses 7 and 8. He came as a witness. That's why he came. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. Now, witness is a central theme in the gospel of John. In fact, the noun witness is found 14 times in John's gospel. The verb to witness is found 33 times. Again, witness is a very important term. In fact, there are eight who bear witness to Jesus in the Gospel of John. We see here, it is John the Baptist who bears witness to Jesus Christ. If you look over in chapter 5, just flip over a couple of pages. In John chapter 5, we see another uh, who bears witness to Jesus. Verse 36, the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, bear witness about me. And so we see John the Baptist came to bear witness of Jesus Christ. Here, Jesus says his very works bear witness about him. So when he raised the dead, when he healed the lame, he gave sight to the blind and he made the ears of the deaf to, to hear, he is communicating something about himself. Those works bear witness about him. But then in look in verse 37, there's a third witness. And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. And so John the Baptist bears witness of Jesus. His works bear witness of Jesus. The Father bears witness of Jesus. But then look and notice of verse 39. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. Now, what are the scriptures he's referring to there? He's referring to the Old Testament. Jesus is giving us a, a Bible interpretation lesson here. He is telling us the Old Testament is not about nation building. It's about Redeemer sending. He says the scriptures bear witness about me. And so, thus far, we've seen in John that John the Baptist bears witness of Jesus. We've seen his works bear witness of Jesus. The Father bears witness of Jesus. And the Scriptures bear witness of Jesus. If you look over in John chapter 8, we see another 
who bears witness of Jesus. In John chapter 8, verse 18, he says, I am the one who bears witness about myself. So Jesus bears witness about himself. And then in chapter 12, verse 17, you see another who bears witness. You think this is a theme in, in the, the gospel? The crowd, verse 17 of chapter 12, that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead, continued to bear witness. And so the crowd that is observing Jesus' works bear witness of Jesus. And then finally, one final witness is found in John chapter 15, verse 26. When the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, He will bear witness about me. The Spirit, why did the Spirit come? The Spirit came to bear witness of Jesus. How do you know if a church is Spirit-filled? It's not because a a lot of craziness and nonsense is taking place. It's because a, a church is making much of Jesus. That's how we know a church is Spirit-filled. How do you know if a person is Spirit-filled? It's because that person makes much of Jesus. Because the Holy Spirit came to bear witness of Jesus. That's why He came. And then there's one final witness, verse 27 there. And you also will bear witness. Who's He speaking to there? He's speaking to the disciples. In other words, how do we know if we're faithful disciples of Jesus Christ? We bear witness to the one that John the Baptist bears witness to, to his works bear witness to, the Father bears witness to, Jesus himself bears witness to, the Holy Spirit bears witness to, the crowds bear witness to, and to the disciples themselves bear witness to. Is that where you are today? One of the reasons this is given to us is not just to to scratch our historical itch about John the Baptist. John the Baptist is a model. He is an example of someone who's been captured by the glory of Jesus Christ. He came to bear witness. In other words, Jesus is the reason for our existence today. Paul said in Colossians 1, All things were created through him and what? For him. Which means your marriage is not for your fundamental happiness. Now, happiness is a fruit of being obedient to Jesus. Your marriage has as its purpose to bear witness to Jesus. You were created through him and for him. Your vocation is not intended for you to make a name for yourself in your particular world or to... Build your bank account. It's to witness to Jesus. Everything about us, if we are functioning, if we're to flourish as the image of God, we should understand is to bear witness to the, to the Lord Jesus Christ. Our, our parenting, our vocations, our church. How do you know if a church is functioning the way the New Testament intends it to function? The church is centered on the things the Bible centers on. And what does the Bible center on? The witness of our Lord Jesus Christ. And this was John the Baptist's witness. 
And so great was the witness that people began to have exaggerated ideas about him. Some begin to believe, in fact, that he was the Messiah. But John's going to make clear he's not. He denounces that. Notice with me in verse 8. He was not the light. He can't be any clearer than that. He's just a witness. He was not the light, but he came to bear witness to the light. Now, I love that John does not leave us hanging as to what he said about the light. If you look over in verse 29 of chapter 1, we get an idea of what John the Baptist said in his witness of the light. Look in verse 29. The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and he said, Behold, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. So what did John the Baptist say in his witness of the light? Behold, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. Now, I happen to believe that this is the answer to a question that was first set forth in Genesis chapter 22. And in fact, the entire Old Testament has been seeking to answer this question. And the question was posed by Isaac as he laid himself out on the altar before God. He asked his father, Abraham, Father, where is the lamb? Where is the lamb? And John the Baptist, the witness, comes and says, Behold the Lamb of God. What did he say in his witness of this Lamb? He came to take away the sins of the world. How does he do that? Jesus came in a twofold way to take away the sins of the world. We never assumed this. He came, first of all, to fulfill all righteousness as our substitute, as our federal head. He fulfilled the righteous requirements of the law as our substitute so that you could be declared righteous in a righteous God's sight. And then this son, this substitute, laid himself out on the altar and was crucified for sinners. And for those who trust in him, their sins are taken away. Sin's penalty is dealt with at the cross. That's what John the Baptist witnessed to. In fact, verse 34, he goes on and he says, I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. That's what John the Baptist came to witness about. Jesus, the Son of God, the Lamb of God, who came to take away the sins of the world. That is our hope. So, John the Baptist is a model witness to the light, but he's not the light. Notice verse 9. He says, The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. Now, by affirming that Jesus is the true light, we also see in John that he calls himself the true bread from heaven, And the true vine. Isn't that interesting? Why would Jesus use the language of true bread from heaven and true vine? Again, he's picking up Old Testament shadows and types. In the wilderness wandering years, God provided manna. Daily manna to sustain the people of God 
between their redemption and their inheritance. Jesus says, I am the true bread. That manna points to me. I am the true bread from heaven. He who eats this bread will never hunger again. But he also says in John 15, I am the true vine. Israel is depicted as a vine. Now, why is that important? It's as if God is communicating that in Israel, God will bring about a new Eden. Uh, Israel is depicted in Eden-like language. God is going to bring a restoration to what happened in the fall. But Israel went bankrupt. Spiritual bankruptcy. They went AWOL. Jesus says, I am the true vine. And here, again, he is the true light. He is the light that Isaiah speaks of in chapter 9. He is the light that Isaiah speaks of in Isaiah chapter 60. Now, in one sense, this light only gives light to those who believe, okay? Because those who don't believe are still in darkness. But in another sense, there's a general illumination that is true of the whole human race. We are dispositioned, in other words, and hardwired for Jesus. That's what verse 9 is telling us. Listen to these words from J.C. Ryle. This is very helpful. He says, Christ is to the souls of men what the Son, S-U-N, is to the world. He is the center and the source of all spiritual light, warmth, life, health, growth, beauty, and fertility. Like the sun, he shines for the common benefit for all mankind. If millions of mankind were mad enough, that is crazy, to dwell in caves underground or to bandage their eyes, their darkness would be their own fault and not the fault of the sun. So likewise, if millions of men love spiritual darkness rather than the light, the blame must be laid on their blind hearts and not on Christ. And it is a New Testament fact that God has revealed something to himself to every person who's ever walked on earth. His eternal attributes, his eternal nature, his invisible attributes... His divine power has been revealed in the created order. Now that general revelation is not sufficient to save us. But it is sufficient to condemn us all. Because in general revelation, if you were to go to some lost tribe in Africa, you will see false worship. You won't see atheists. Atheism is a new kind of secular paganism. It's, it's, it's really new in history. You will find religion in every tribe and tongue. But it's false religion. Because what they've done is they've taken what God has revealed about himself and they've exchanged that truth for a lie. And so it's sufficient to condemn them, but it's not efficient to save them. If you're going to be saved, you have to respond rightly to the light. And that light is found in a person. And so that's what Paul John is telling us here. 
If you don't respond to that light, judgment. Now, we don't like to use that terminology today. It sounds unenlightened. It sounds uneducated. It sounds intolerant. But the reality is the Bible depicts a day of judgment for those who reject the light. And that light is found in one person, Jesus Christ. That's what John is telling us here. But in another sense, think about this as a as an evangelist. And that's what we are. We're witnesses to the light, correct? When you approach a person who's never believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, you can trust verse 9 is true. This light gives light to everyone. Which means every person you share the, the gospel with has, pre, has been hardwired for Jesus. They have been predispositioned for Jesus. They were created by Jesus and for Jesus. So you can begin with that presupposition. And so be bold in your gospel. Be unrelenting in your gospel. Jesus has preceded you. This light gives light to everyone. doesn't mean everyone's going to be saved. In fact, we see this in verses 10 to 11, where the word and the life and the light is rejected. Look in verse 10. He was in the world. And the world was made through him. And yet the world did not know him. So three times John here uses the word world. And he says three things about the world. Knows first of all, he was in the world. That means he didn't just come on a weekend visit. He was immersed in the world. He came, he was in the world. Secondly, the world was made through him. He came into the very world that he created as the agent of creation. But thirdly, the world did not know him. In other words, they did not receive him. Keep in mind that the basic sin in the Gospel of John is the failure to believe. That's the basic sin. The world did not believe. The, the world did not receive him. It wasn't lack of evidence. No one is a victim to a lack of evidence. No one. There is no one on the planet today, if they just had enough evidence, they would believe. There's no one that has that. It's because they love darkness rather than light. It's a moral issue. It's not an evidence issue. The world did not believe him. And in fact, in verse 11, John is going to highlight the tragedy of this rejection. Notice verse 11. He came to his own. Now, who is his own? It's the covenant people. It's Israel. He came to his own. And his own people did not receive him. And yet, John is not going to leave us here with the impression that the gospel is not effective and effectual. Okay? That's what he's going to emphasize. Now, in verses 10 to 11, if, if we left it there, it would it'd be quite grim. But verses 12 to 13, as he closes out this section of this passage, we see that the gospel always brings salvation. There's always hope in the gospel. And that brings us to the final point, the word, the life, and the light that saves. But to all who did receive him, 
who believed in his name. He gave the right to become children of God. And what does it mean here to receive him? To believe in his name. There is a movement out there that teaches that all you have to do is have an intellectual trust in Jesus. No repentance is necessary. If you just have an intellectual assent that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, died on the cross for your sins, you'll be saved. But that's not what this word means, to receive him, to believe in his name. It is a repentant faith that saves. It is a believing repentance that saves. Repentance and faith are the two sides of the same salvation coin. When John says to those who receive him, to those who believe in his name, he gives the right to become the children of God. What he is saying, he is saying that to those who believe in the Son of God's promises with their head, to those who desire the Son of God's purposes with their hearts, and those who will obey the Son of God's precepts with their hands, it is those who have the right to become the children of God. Again, it's the promises of God, the purposes of God, the precepts of God. Someone told me this week, I love Jesus, but I don't go to church because I don't love His church. And that sounds sufficient. I mean, after all, someone says they love Jesus, how do you counter that? First John tells us, if you love Jesus, you'll love the brothers. In fact, I said to this man, you're telling me you, you're committed to Jesus. Yes. But you're not committed to the same thing Jesus is committed to. He's committed to his church. He laid down his life for his church. So to tell me that you love Jesus, but you don't love his church is a contradiction. Because to, be, to love Jesus is to be committed to the things Jesus is committed to. That's what it means to receive him. And so we, we believe, we trust in the promises of the Son of God. That if you come to Him in faith and repentance, you'll be saved. You also love the purposes of God in Jesus Christ. And you also are obedient. It's not that your obedience saves you, it's the fruit. You obey His precepts. That's what it means here to receive Him, to believe in His name. And the result, notice... He gives the right to become children of God. Your status changes. It's a status change. This is the language of adoption, where we are received in the number and now have the rights and the privileges of sonship. You now become an heir of God because of the Son of God. In fact, this is such glorious language that John himself never got over it. At the end of his life, he was aged. And he's writing 1 John. And in 1 John 3, he says, See what kind of the love the Father has lavished upon us that we might be called children of God. And that is what we are. This is adoption. This is the language of sonship. And it is for those who repent and receive Jesus Christ as Lord, as King, as Savior. This is called conversion. That's what it means to be converted. Repent and believe. 
But then there's another perspective. It's called the new birth. We don't regenerate ourselves. Here's where we find the great tension. It's not a contradiction, it's a tension. All high theology has tension. For instance, God is three, God is one, God is one, God is three. The Bible is a human document, a divine document, one book. Jesus Christ is fully God and fully man, one person. Now, that would make sense to me if he was 50% God and 50% man in one person, but he is 100% God and 100% man in one person. There's tension in all high theology. Well, we see tension even in the doctrine of salvation. In the doctrine of salvation, you must repent of your sins and you must believe in Jesus Christ. That is your responsibility. And yet, John would never leave us with the idea that your capacity to believe is by human exertion because you're just spiritually superior to those around you who have not yet believed. Notice in verse 13. He gives the right to become children of God those who were born. Now, that's the language of the new birth. Born not of blood, not of the will of flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Isn't that beautiful? Now, this is the the, the balance. Verse 12, your responsibility. Verse 13, divine sovereignty. Don't lose sight of that. There's too many people who lose sight of that and they compromise one at the expense of the other. There are those who say, well, God is sovereign. I'm just a puppet. Well, that's just bad theology. The Bible doesn't teach that. Then there are others who take such responsibility for our human culpability that they compromise divine sovereignty. Verse 12, human responsibility. Verse 13, divine sovereignty. If you're born again today, it's not because you are in the Phi Beta Kappa honor fraternity. Spiritually. It's because the sovereign grace of God came to bear on your darkness, on your spiritual death, on your spiritual ignorance, on your hard heart. That is why you are born again today. In fact, he speaks here that we are born not by natural procreation, but by spiritual procreation. That's the language he uses, and he uses three different expressions. He says, you were born not of blood. Now, why is that important? Well, descent from the patriarchs was so important to Israel that there were those who believed that because I am an ethnic Jew, God is going to wink at my sin in the day of judgment. You go, well, that just sounds crazy. Baptists are no different. There are many today who believe because their parents were Christians or because they joined a church 30 years ago and there's been no evidence of regeneration since that God is going to wink in the day of judgment. He says here, we're born not of blood. doesn't matter if your parents were Christians. It doesn't matter if your grandparents were Christians. You're not born again because of your spiritual heritage. Secondly, he says, nor by the will of the flesh. 
does not come by your exertion. It's not by your will. He says it again in another way, nor by the will of man. Isn't that interesting? You're not saved because, let me use it, your free will. You're not saved by the will of man. Now, do we have wills? Absolutely. That's verse 12. Let's don't lose the balance here. He's saying here, though, fundamentally, you're not born again by your will. You're born again by the Spirit of God. Again, there's this compatible relationship between divine sovereignty and human responsibility. If you compromise one at the expense of the other, then you're out of balance. You don't have to figure it out. Can you figure out the Trinity? I can't figure out the Trinity. I just know that God is triune. And I have no problem with not being able to figure that out because he is infinite. He's an infinite God. And I'm a finite person with a pea brain. He says here, you're born not by the will of man, but by God, the grace of God. He's piling up expressions to emphasize that the new birth is all of grace. The new birth is a miracle, in other words. People are born of God. And that's why you need Jesus today. That's why we need the Word of God to come to bear on our ignorance. That's why we need the light of God to come to bear on our darkness. It's why we need the life of God to come to bear on our alienation from the very life of God. That's what Advent season is all about. That's what John is teaching us in John chapter 1. Advent season is a time we reflect on that. Why Jesus came. He came on a special ops mission. One much more effective than Operation Red Dawn. We thank, we're thankful for Operation Red Dawn. But all it did was restrain evil. He came to reverse it. To reverse it with people like you and me who are more like Saddam Hussein naturally than we are the Son of God. And that's the good news of Christmas. It's the good news of John. It's the good news of the gospel. And he wants you to believe that. Let's pray.